Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. Hope you had a great holiday weekend. Um, Real quick update on something. You may have noticed last week in the service here, it got real hot. And I'll just be honest with you, I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, We have been waiting for about a year for um, new AC units to be delivered so that we can install them and better control the temperature in this room. The good news is I have been told that those units are in Knoxville. That's pretty close. I think they've been all around the globe. Uh, They're not yet here. I've been told that they'll be installed early December. I don't trust it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Don't get your hopes up. But in the meantime, you know, dress according. You pack for church, you know. You might need a jacket. You might need to shed some layers. I don't know. Plan accordingly. But we'll, hopefully here in the next couple of weeks that will happen. We start a, a new series today, The Soul Felt Its Worth. Uh, this is our Advent series. And we're going to look at the four traditional themes of Advent, same as we do uh, each year. Those themes are hope, peace, joy, and love. Uh, weird sort of quirk of the calendar, though, almost always the very first Sunday after um, Thanksgiving is the first week of Advent. And this week it's actually not. Today's actually not the first week of Advent. That's next week. So we kind of have this extra little week in here. So what we're going to do is use today as sort of a, a bit of setup to lay a foundation for where we're headed in the next four weeks as we discuss hope, peace, joy, and love. And we're going to discuss those four things specifically through the lens of the soul, all right? Uh, which is sort of a weird, weird topic, the soul. Uh, it's tricky because, I mean, what, are, what the heck is the soul, <laughs> right? Like, what do we, I mean, we, I think we have this sort of vague, sort of squishy sense of what a soul is, but I wonder if you've really thought seriously about that. I mean, what are we really talking about when we talk about the soul or about your soul. What's interesting is uh, I've heard stuff like this my whole life. People saying what matters most in the world is the state of your soul. What is the condition of your soul? It matters now. It matters for all of eternity. How is the state of your soul? And people say there's great intensity. And if you were to interrupt them and say, I agree, but what's a soul? They'd be like, ah, <laughs> could we change the subject? Like, <laughs> because we know it's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. But what? But what is it? And the thing is, Christians don't always agree exactly on how we should think about this. And the whole concept of a soul, I just want to acknowledge, is just so abstract and woo-woo that uh, it's hard to think through. And, and and as a result, a lot of a lot of preacher types like me just don't talk about it because it's like, I don't know. Is it even worth it? And I get that. I am I am fully aware that this whole venture for the next few weeks may be a terrible mistake. Okay, so I'm open to that possibility. Um, But I don't think so. Because it's actually enormously important 
that you tend to your soul. And that we're mindful of our soul. Even at this point, when we're early in the message here, and you may have already tuned out and be like, I don't, you know, I don't care. I don't care. I don't know. It seems weird. But don't, I want to resist that temptation. Lean in. This is, I think, enormously important. Again, that we're mindful of our soul, that we tend to our soul. The authors of Scripture were certainly mindful of their souls, and they certainly taught us to be mindful of ours. So we can do this, all right? Everybody get some blood flowing. We can do this. Let's just talk about it. We're adults. We'll all be fine. You're hopefully well-rested from Thanksgiving. I've got my professor glasses on. We're ready. We can do this. What? on earth is a soul. Actually, what in heaven is a soul? What in the hell is a soul? (laughs) See what I did there? Such a lame joke. I'm not apologizing. Uh, So it's a tough question. So I'm going to do what I do with most tough questions. I'm going to outsource the hard work to someone else. So uh, we're going to watch a four-minute video by the Bible Project to help us get sort of the biblical foundation for this conversation. And then we'll take it from there, okay? Okay? Okay, Okay, cool. (laughs) Glad you're with me. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the word soul. The Hebrew word is nefesh. It occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. The common English translation of this word is soul, and that's kind of unfortunate. Here's why. The English word soul comes with lots of baggage from ancient Greek philosophy. It's the idea that the soul is a non-physical, immortal essence of a person that's contained or trapped in their body to be released at death. It's a ghost in the machine kind of idea. This notion is totally foreign to the Bible. It's not at all what nephesh means in biblical Hebrew. The most basic meaning of nephesh is throat. Like when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty, and they say to God, we miss the cucumbers and melons we had in Egypt. Now our nephesh has dried up. Or when Joseph was hauled off into slavery in Egypt, his nephesh was put into iron shackles. But nephesh doesn't only mean throat. Since your whole life and body depend on what comes in and out of your throat, nephesh could also be used to refer to the whole person. Like in Genesis, there were 33 nephesh in Jacob's family, that is, 33 people. In the Torah, a murderer is called a nephesh slayer, and a kidnapper is called a nephesh thief. On the first pages of the Bible, both humans and animals are called a living nephesh. And if the life breath has left a human or animal, the nephesh remains. It's just called a dead nephesh, that is, a corpse. So, in the Bible, people don't have a nephesh. Rather, they are a nephesh, a living, breathing, physical being. Now that might surprise you because most people assume the Bible says the soul is what survives apart from the body after death. And while the biblical authors do have a concept of people existing after death waiting for their resurrection, they rarely talk about it. And when they do, they don't use the word nephesh. So even though nephesh is often translated as soul, the Hebrew word really refers to the whole human as a living physical organism. In fact, this is why biblical people can often use this word to refer to themselves. gets translated me or I. Like in Psalm 119, most translations read, let me live that I may praise you. 
In Hebrew, the poet literally says, let my nefesh live that it may praise you. By using nefesh, the poet emphasizes that their entire being, their life and their body, offer thanks to God. In the Song of Songs, the young woman constantly refers to her lover as the one my nefesh loves. And of course, love isn't just an intellectual experience, it's an emotion that activates your whole body, your entire nefesh. This helps us understand the brilliance of other biblical poets who could combine multiple meanings of nefesh in one place. Like in Psalm 42, we read, as the deer pants for the water, so my nefesh pants after you. My nefesh thirsts for the living God. So on a physical level, your throat can be thirsty, like a deer's, but then that physical thirst can become a metaphor for how your whole physical being longs to know and be known by your creator. Which brings us all the way back to the Shema. To love God with all of your nefesh means to devote your whole physical existence to your creator, the one who granted us these amazing bodies in the first place. It's about offering your entire being with all of its capabilities and limitations in the effort to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the Hebrew word for soul. All right. Hopefully that's helpful. It's a start. It's a start. Uh, yeah, thank God for the Bible Project, man. They, they are so helpful. So let me just highlight a couple things from the video real quick. Your soul, everybody listen to me. Your soul is not a ghost that is trapped inside your body until you die. Again, just like they said in the video, that idea is completely foreign to the Bible. I can't state this clearly. It's not, guys, it's not in there, okay? That's our source material. That's what we're working from. And it's not in there at all. As a matter of fact, that's a platonic idea, which means it, it came from the great Greek philosopher Plato, okay? Plato was this brilliant, brilliant philosopher who lived a few hundred years before Jesus, and his ideas went pretty mainstream and affected the way a lot of people view the world. And mostly, this was really, really good. He talked about really good things. Um, and then Jesus came along, and he had a different view of the world, not necessarily at odds or at contrast, but, but still different, uniquely Jesus. He was the way, the truth, and the life. And then a few hundred years into the church, uh, three, four hundred years in, this guy named St. Augustine came along. St. Augustine, I don't think, I don't, I don't know who would be uh, even close to him in this regard. Since the writers of scripture, St. Augustine is the most influential theologian and Christian thinker in the history of Christianity, okay? His ideas, his, his theology, based in scripture, had a brilliant man and a, and a deep value for scripture, helped dramatically shape the way the church and through the church, the entire world see things. He's a really, really influential figure. Anyway, before he became the most significant theologian in the history of the world, before that, he was a college professor. And you know what he taught? Philosophy. He taught the philosophy, particularly of Plato. So his understanding of the world was really shaped by Plato as well. And what happened is not actually, I, I assume that this is entirely unintentional, but without even knowing it, um, a lot of Platonic ideas got sort of smuggled in through St. Augustine's theology, got smuggled into Christian theology by way of Plato. 
And I, I know it's a little bit nerdy, but it's a really, really big deal because significant sort of realms of thought amongst Christians has been colored by Plato and not by scripture. And when we talk about the soul, what most people think of by default is nothing that we find in scripture. Instead, it's an entirely a Platonic idea. All right, so we need to be aware of that. And here's the thing, Plato was really, really smart and really, really helpful to the world, but his ideas should not be elevated above scripture. That was good, a couple of you got it. In the Bible, as we also saw in the video, um, People don't have a soul, they are a soul. I want to take that and actually want to, I want to drill in a bit more because it refers to you, to yourself, to your person, but it refers to you in the deepest possible sense. So there's this guy named Dallas Willard, and in my sometimes humble opinion, uh, I, Dallas Willard has done more to help us get our idea around the idea of a soul, get our minds around the idea of a soul than anyone else has. Um, so there's this book that Dallas Willard wrote called Renovation of the Heart. Lots of you have a copy of Renovation of the Heart. Far fewer of you have read Renovation of the Heart and an even smaller portion of you still have finished Renovation of the Heart. I'm not making fun of you, I'm making fun of me. If you're new to the church, you don't know what I'm talking about, but a few years ago, I really force-fed, like I shoved this book down everybody's throat. I was like, you gotta read the book, you gotta read the book. And, and then Chris Carpenter kind of pulled me aside and he was like, you know what, that's actually, a, that's sort of pretty heady philosophical, are you sure? I was like, ah, oh, it'll be fine. And then a bunch of you were like, Aaron, what in the world? You have lost touch. Why did you give us this book? So I'm sorry, okay? It, was a, it is, a, it is a, difficult, a difficult book. But if you are one of the ones who like held on and read all the way through to the end, there's some really fascinating and I think illuminating stuff about the soul. So I'm going to quote him from that book a couple of times. Here's the first one. This one's really helpful. Soul is the thing that is most fundamentally you and integrated into every part of who you are, yet also something apart and distinct. Thus, the psalmist mentioning the soul in the third person, speaking to the soul, oh, my soul rejoice. The soul, here we go. The soul is that dimension of the person that interrelates all the other dimensions so that they form one life. If you're glazing over, don't, stay with me. <laughs> it's you, it's you, but it's like extra deeply you. It's fundamentally you, it's your, it's your essence maybe we could say. Um, God is Trinitarian, we were just singing about that. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, okay? Now, um, we are, the Bible sort of hints at this idea of us being in some sense Trinitarian ourselves. Not in the same way that, that God is, of course, but in a way we're Trinitarian in that we're a body, soul, and spirit. First uh, Thessalonians 5 verse 23, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. So Paul's addressing these as three separate things. We are, we are body, we are soul, we are spirit. And the distinction, like it matters that we know. Um, uh, there's a book, this is a couple decades ago, this book came out and made, made some waves, uh, called uh, Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. 
Anybody familiar with this one? The premise of the book is really simple. Some of you already figured it out. Um, Men tend to compartmentalize, to keep our ideas and our feelings separate and address them one at a time, moving from one waffle square to the next. But women, on the other hand, as we continue now with mildly offensive food-based stereotypes, uh, (laughs) women are more like a plate of spaghetti where all that stuff gets sort of swirled together and you don't deal with them one at the time. It, it kind of goes, it goes all in one. Now, that's an overgeneralization for sure. Okay, it's not that simple, but, but whatever. I, if you're offended, I didn't write it. Okay. <laughs> Trying to understand ourselves as body, soul, and spirit, I just want to acknowledge this, this is totally a spaghetti conversation. Like there is a dynamic swirl for sure between your body, soul, and spirit, okay? So I acknowledge that. But that in mind, let's talk about it waffle style um, because that's the only way I know how to do it. Probably because I'm a man. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, so I seriously, I thought about how I can't. Oh, this is all I got. Okay, body, spirit. So what we see, I mean, very clearly, up kind of in a higher level, we have our body and our spirit. And then, but sitting beneath that, sitting lower, but then undergirding or sort of being the foundation for both is the soul. So the body piece, this is easiest for us to understand, for us to conceptualize. We've got our five senses. We dwell in a physical realm. Um, we're consciously aware of our bodies all the time. Um, Our bodies, as it says, are our outer persons. They are our physical selves. So easy enough. Next, our spirits. By contrast, our spirits are, we can think of as as our inner persons, our non-physical selves. Uh, In in scripture, this is also sometimes talked about as mind and heart as well. Now, spirit, I want to acknowledge, this is a bit more of an abstract idea for sure. But I'll just point out this. This is a pretty universally accepted idea. This idea that there's, There's more to us than just the atoms and molecules that make us up. There's more to us than what we can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch. We all have inner lives, and and we know that. And we all know intuitively that there are spiritual realities. And I I do mean, I think all. Uh, This is not uh, a religious thing per se. There are lots of people out there, you've probably heard this phrase, who claim to be spiritual but not religious, Okay, does that that ring a bell? And that's a weird sentence, but what I think those folks are driving at is um, they may not sign up for any particular set of doctrines or beliefs like Christianity or Islam or or Buddhism or or whatever, but they still acknowledge that they know full well, this ain't it, right? Like there's, no, there's something, there's something inner, there's something more. They have a spirit, they have an inner person. There is a non-physical reality. So I think that's, that's clear enough, maybe, okay. But here's the trouble. I think the real trouble comes in. The spirit and the soul, especially by Christians, um, are often considered to be interchangeable, right? All right, everybody look at me. No, all right, they're not. <laughs> that is incorrect. They're not, and we all oh, soul, spirit, spirit, soul, you know, whatever you get. It. No, 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 actually, Uh, Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between the soul and the spirit. If our soul is the same thing as our spirit, then how can the Bible slice between the two, (laughs) right? 
These, the Bible holds these distinctions. We need to hold them as well. All right, another Dallas Willard quote. Stay with me. What is running your life at any given moment is your soul. Not external circumstances or your thoughts or your intentions or even your feelings, but your soul. The soul is that aspect of your whole being that, that correlates, integrates, enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of, of you. It is the life center of the human being. It regulates whatever is occurring in each of those dimensions and how they interact with each other and respond to surrounding events in the overall governance of your life. In other words, it's kind of like an HVAC system that regulates the, like the ones that are not working in here, the, that regulates the temperature and the tone of everything. And then he says, the soul is deep in the sense of being basic or foundational and also in the sense that it lies almost totally beyond our conscious awareness. So your soul is you at its deepest place. It's non-physical, but it runs both your inner and your outer life, the physical and the non-physical. It regulates it at all, okay? Some of you may be thinking, Aaron, I still don't care. <laughs> Land the plane, okay, I'm getting to the point. Stay with me, I'm on my way. The condition of your soul matters. It matters right now. But, but stay with me. It, probably not in the way that you're used to hearing that. Here's what I mean. Um, if you were raised Protestant, um, or more specifically, evangelical Protestant, and I want to be clear, by the way, that's a very good thing to be an evangelical Protestant. This is an evangelical Protestant church. I don't know if you knew that. I'm an evangelical Protestant. Chances are you are too. At least by, I am an evangelical Protestant, at least by the non-hysterical definitions. I'm just going to jump on my soapbox and tell you something that annoys me. Words mean things, then people get offended, and then they change what the words mean, and we're all supposed to adjust to it. So I don't like that, but there are, like, fact-based definitions of what it means to be an evangelical Protestant. And then there's some hysterical ones. If we put those to the side, I am a down-the-line evangelical Protestant, and this is an evangelical Protestant church, and this is not what the sermon's about, so I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Find my place here. Okay, if that's your background, then that's a good thing. Then the condition of someone's soul is most likely, in your mind, a strict binary by that, I mean, it's either one thing or another thing. That soul is either saved or it is unsaved. And that's the whole conversation. It's a pass-fail situation. Actually, the condition of your soul is either zero or 100, nothing in between. If you're saved, straight 100, baby. If you're not saved, settle. No, zero. No questions asked. In fact, that's called being damned if you don't get the essence of it. Like, that's bad. All right, so stay with me. I know it's, this is a tough one to stay with me. Stay with me. I want to be very clear about this. There is a binary. Like, we are either saved or unsaved. That is completely true. And if we're saved, that's really good. And if we're not, that's really bad. I am not trying to water that down at all. I agree that when we speak of the soul, saved or unsaved is the number one question, for sure. But it's not the only question. 
It's not. And the, and the other ones are really, really important. And the zero or 100 thing, I want to be very clear, that is just not at all how the Bible talks about our souls. Like, not at all. Your soul is more than a switch that gets toggled to either saved or unsaved. It, there's more to it than that. I've, I've heard people say things, you probably have too, like, oh man, I'm just, I'm a wreck right now and I, I'm, I'm, spiritually I'm really struggling and my sin's taking over and there's no spiritual practices and I just, it's a mess, I'm a wreck. I'm, I mean, I, my soul is good. I know my soul is good because I'm saved, but I'm a mess. So here's how I think scripture would respond to that. That person is probably saved, but their soul isn't okay. Their soul is saved, but their soul is not well. Their soul is in agony. Their soul is aching or dry or weary or thirsty or downcast or desperately in need of help or restoration or renewal or nourishment. I read you a stack of verses. Try to stay with me. First one from Jesus, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus taught that our souls, even saved souls, can be exhausted, weary, needing rest. Uh, Peter, this is 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. So, so Peter, writing to Christians, by the way, he thought that our souls, even though they are saved, can be embattled, can be at war. Let's look at a number of things all written by David. Psalm 23, this might ring a bell. The Lord is my shepherd, I like nothing. He makes me lie down on green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Psalm 42, David again, first couple verses. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God. Verse 5, same chapter. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Psalm 63, verse 1, my soul thirsts for you. Psalm 84, verse 2, my soul yearns and even faints for the, course of the, for the courts of the Lord. So David believed that our souls could be parched, thirsty, and seeking, and, 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 and yearning, and fainting, and disturbed, and downcast, and needing to be renewed, and refreshed, and healed, and restored. Just point out something about those psalms that I just pulled little excerpts from. If you're a church kid, you may have already noticed it. Those are like the psalms' greatest hits. Like if we were to make a list of like the 10 most beloved psalms, like they're all on the list. Why? I think because they, they speak of something that is deeply resonant. They, they acknowledge something that is often entirely neglected within us something that's deeper than even our inner lives, our souls. Our souls need to be saved, for sure. But we don't, come on now, we do not toggle them to the saved position, declare them to be well for all of eternity, neglect them entirely to collect dust while they wait to escape from our bodies at death. That ain't it. Your soul matters now. Your soul lies deep within you, but the health or the unhealth 
of your souls animates everything about you. In this life, not just the next. One more from Dallas Willard. I think it's the best one that sums it up the best, so lean in. Our soul is like a stream of water, which gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other area of our life. When that stream is as it should be, we are constantly refreshed and exuberant in all we do because our soul itself is then profusely rooted in the vastness of God and his kingdom, including nature and all else within us is enlivened and, in, and directed by that stream. Therefore, we are in harmony with God, reality, and the rest of human nature and nature at large. Um, many of you, I would think, are, are familiar with the absolutely brilliant, um, timeless psalm, uh, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, ring a bell. You've probably heard the backstory for that as well, but if you haven't, I'm going to share it with you anyway. Um, it's an incredible story. It's like, you know, you hear really good stories, then you check on Snopes.com and you find out they're not true and it ruins it for you. This has not been ruined by Snopes.com. This is a real story. Um, Horatio Spafford is the guy who wrote this hymn, and uh, he was a wealthy businessman who was, to a large degree, financially devastated by the, uh, the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. So was, things were kind of a mess, trying to pick up the pieces from that. Shortly after that, he was about to set sail to England um, to do work with D.L. Moody on like an, uh, an evangelistic crusade, as, as they were called at that point. So, um, so he's working with D.L. Moody, that type of guy, loved the Lord, um, was intentional about sharing his faith. Um, but just as he was about to head out, um, business problems kind of cropped up again. And so what he said, he, he said to his wife and his four daughters, he said, you go on ahead on this ship. I'm going to take care of some stuff and I'll join you soon. I'll catch the next one. Well, the ship that he put his family on sank and only his wife survived. His four daughters all drowned. And then Spafford hears of this, realizes his wife is in England grieving alone loads the next ship to cross the Atlantic in order to be with his wife. And as that ship was passing nearby where his four daughters had drowned, he pulled out pen and paper and wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It was in that moment of grief that he wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. See, for Spafford, the condition of his soul, don't miss this, wasn't about his circumstances. It wasn't about his business dealings. It wasn't about his grief. It was about something deeper than that. Something that was even more fundamental. When your soul is well, you still grieve. Writing those words was an exercise in grief for Spafford. You just don't grieve as those who are without hope. Because in spite of circumstances, your soul is well. When your soul is well, hear me, I'm not. You still experience the full range of life, all, the full force of it. The good and the bad and everything in between. But those forces aren't in control. Something way deeper 
is animating your reality, your coming and your going, your thoughts, your spirit, your body. Be clear, these things come our way. You don't remain unaffected, but in a real way, you, you do remain undefeated by those things. This is how Jesus, or pardon me, Paul could write these words, these ludicrous words, but were true. He said, we're pressed, but not crushed. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because it was, because it was well with his soul. That's why. So today, I want us to wrestle with a very simple but fundamental question. How's your soul? Not, not just is it toggled to the saved or unsaved position, which is the most important question, but also, how is your soul? Is it well? Is it unwell? And the answer for that might be obvious, but probably it's, probably it's not super obvious to you. Like, if, if, I, if I walked into an ICU where someone was clinging to death and I asked, how's your health? That would be super insensitive for one thing uh, but the answer would be apparent like not they're not well that's not it's not always that that obvious I'll tell you something about about me I've been I have been preaching for 25 years I've preached hundreds if not thousands of times um, and so what that means is like I'm pretty calm right now you know like I am not freaking out. Okay, my, my heart's not racing. I'm not flushed. All the sort of signs of, of deep anxiety or a panic. Like, no, I don't have any of that. Guys, I've done this so many times. It's sort of a normative thing. And if you ask me, Aaron, are you, are you, are you anxious when you preach? Then my answer would be no. I, I'm, I'm not anxious when I'm, I'm calm. When I, I actually love it. It's like my favorite thing to do. But here's the thing. Um, a few weeks ago, we did the, the big Next Step class in here. A lot of you were, were in that class. And um, Sharon, my wife, um, did uh, an icebreaker to kind of get us going. And she said, just for fun, um, why don't you look to the person next to you and tell them the thing that Aaron does that annoys you the most when he preaches. <laughs> Clearly, it was her idea. Um, and then she didn't, she, I thought it was a great idea. She was like, I won't do that. That's mean. I was like, no, that's a great idea. You should do that. Let's laugh at my expense. So anyway, uh, I went, and it was fun. It was a good time. And then um, later, a few days later, my son was telling me, he said, you know what? The person who told me the thing that you do, they're like, he was like, dude, she was right on. And I was like, all right, I'm listening. What, what she said was that I do that annoys her is apparently... When I'm speaking, I have a real, I don't know how to say it. I have a, a sort of a tendency <laughs> to, to fidget with my stool, okay? If you're, on the, if you're listening on the podcast, I'm talking about a stool that you, that you sit on. Anyway, that's off track. I have a tendency to just sort of do this. So... <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. No potty humor at church. What am I thinking? Here's the thing. I, I am not anxious. I am relaxed. I'm having a good time. This is my favorite thing to do. But apparently, there's still a little bit of nervous energy that apparently, I actually am kind of anxious, you know? But you got you to look a bit beyond, like, 
not the most obvious things, but what are the subtle things that actually portray, oh, he's a little, he's a little nervous, right? he's got some nervous energy right now. When I ask, how's your soul, it might be really, really obvious, but probably you're going to have to stop, look a bit more deeply, and try to find the breadcrumbs that indicate, because it, it's deep, it's deep within us. What, what is, what is the state of your soul? Is there a place of unhealth? Is there something that could be, could be highlighted along the way? And so we're going we're gonna to do that together. Let me invite you to stand as you're able as we wrap up here. I'll tell you one more thing when I, um, when I know I'm going to preach on something and I know I'm going to end with a question like, how's your soul? Then I spend the week thinking about that very question. If I'm going to ask you to do it, I should do it myself. So I've spent the week trying to get to the bottom of, all right, how? No, really, deeper. How's my soul? <laughs> it's been sort of an interesting, I, I, I spend days not really, not really getting any traction toward an answer. But what I noticed along the way is that I just kept this old song that I hadn't thought of in a couple of decades. I haven't sung in probably 15, 20 years. I, it, it, I was stuck on my head all week long. <laughs> just out of nowhere, I just kept singing it and singing it. And then um, as I was praying, asking the question, how's my soul? I, I realized I was singing that song. So anyway, it's, an, it's an old song. You're probably not even familiar with it. It's called Hunger for Holiness. But what I, what I realized and what I remembered is that when I was listening to that song a lot 15, 20 years ago, I would sing the words, Lord, I hunger for holiness, and I would just weep. And I was so desperate to be pure before the Lord. And I was so unsatisfied with anything less than righteousness. I would just, I would just, I would just weep and weep as I sang that song over and over again. And what the Lord highlighted to me is like, man, you've been singing that song all week. Uh, but you haven't responded like that at all. And what I really, it wasn't obvious right away. But as I took time to reflect and to look and to examine, and I tried to join the Holy Spirit as he was trying to speak to me and, and, and help me find the breadcrumbs, what I realized is that there's a certain, certain level of sin that I've just become okay with. I'm just not bothered by it the way I was once bothered by it. That I just thought somewhere along the way, I just apparently decided that's it's par for the course. That's as far as you get. But there was a time when I was so bothered by that sin that I would weep and I would grieve for the very same sins that maybe I'm just running past with little thought at all now. And what it showed me is that there was something in my soul that was sick. That is. So I got some clarity around how, how is my soul? So what I'm hoping we can do is in a moment of stillness and reflection, maybe the Lord will highlight for you now. Help you see the bread comes. Maybe it's obvious. Maybe it's, oh, I know exactly how my soul is. And that's clear. Maybe you have to look a little bit deeper because it lies largely beyond our conscious awareness. 
Let's ask the Holy Spirit to do that. And maybe he speaks to us now, or maybe it's a process that for me takes many days, but either way, let's really lean in. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you help us to see what maybe not, what maybe isn't obvious? You know, in my case, when I've settled on, settled for something, for an unholy standard for so long, I, I stopped being cognizant of it. And there was, some, there was something in my soul that was off. And it was painful and is painful, Lord, that you revealed it, but it's kindness that you revealed it. Or would you do the same for all of us? Is our soul saved? That's a yes or no question. Is it well? How is our soul? That's far more nuanced. But it matters. Speak to us, Lord. No doubt there are people in this room whose souls are weary, frustrated, or scared, or exhausted or just really struggling, just really sick. Show us, Lord. Would you help us to just see one layer deeper?